Welcome to Counterthought, a podcast conserving America's freedom, culture, and values. This is Brian Kletter, the creator and host of the podcast. You can engage with the podcast on Instagram at counter underscore thought or at Counterthought CEO and on our Facebook page, Counterthought Podcast. For audio versions of the podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And for video versions of the podcast, join us on YouTube at the Counterthought channel. Let's go. What is happening in Black America? Is Black America perpetually under the thumb of White America? Do all the systems and institutions of America need to be torn down and rebuilt in order for Black America equality to be achieved? Or does Black America only have themselves to blame for their racial disparities? This is episode 38 of Counterthought, What is Happening in Black America? All right. Thank you for joining me. I want to say that I did a lot of research on this topic, so I hope I do this topic justice. So in my preparation for this episode, I quickly realized that there are two camps when it comes to Black America and the racial disparities that exist within it. You have one camp, which is that the reason why Black America has this Black underclass, as it's called, why there is so much poverty that is a disparity compared to the number of Blacks that are within the American population, you have it's because white supremacy or systemic racism. We've heard that term systemic racism a lot over the past two years. You go back as far as eight years if you really wanted to. And then the second camp is what I like to call the, yes, things have happened to Black America in the past, but Black America is strong enough to overcome them and has overcome them to a certain extent, and we do not need the government's help to get there. In fact, too much government help is actually racist in itself. So the first camp, you have some popular names that have to that exist in that world of the white supremacy and systemic racism. You may have heard of them before. That's Tahani Coates and Abram X. Kendi. And then the second camp, which is we don't need your help. You have Jason Riley and Glenn Lowry. So as I'm going through and listening to debates through these indi- from these individuals and other institutions, the Black Urban League, the Manhattan Institute, um, watching one-on-one interviews that these individuals did, I quickly could tell that those were the two camps. And I think those are also the two camps that you see portrayed in TV. At least that's what I've noticed. So then the question boils down to, okay, Whether you are in camp one or camp two, what can be done to help black America? That's the end goal, but just the two camps have different ways of getting there. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. What can be done to elevate black America? Now, I have a lot of statistics to share with you in this episode, so buckle up for that. But first, I want to get into a little more of a a historical piece regarding what is happening in Black America. So Black America, as we know, they were enslaved until the 1860s. And the Civil War happened, the Emancipation Proclamation, and Black America was 
free. But it took 100 more years until the civil rights movement in the 1960s to truly achieve this perceived freedom. So we're almost 60 years to the year removed from the civil rights movement. But the argument is that black America is still not truly free. That even after the civil rights movement, even after laws have been passed and acts have been passed and resolutions have been made and regulations put in place and government agencies and all government expansion when it comes to the welfare state, everything, all these different safety nets, that there were still systems in place to keep black America down. So what can be done? Is black America truly under the thumb of white America? Is it just perceived that way because there are other minorities in this country? Or is it something that black America is doing within, from like a cultural perspective, that is actually damaging their own cause and goal of equality? Now, people say that in the 60s, when Lyndon B. Johnson became president, you know, he, he took over after Kennedy was assassinated. His reimagining of the country was also known as the Great Society. And a lot of people who are more so in Camp 2 say that Great Society was not really the start of the fall, but in the modern era, more of the start of the fall of this black underclass or the creation of this black underclass. So was the Great Society. Lyndon B. Johnson had this, this great plan to remake the Society of America. And one of the main components of that, I mean, there were good things that, that were a part of it, but two of the main pieces were taking this, the bank of money and Social Security and creating Medicare and Medicaid. Now, we're familiar with Medicare. You may not be familiar with Medicaid, <clears throat> but Medicaid in that welfare system is used for people who live in poverty to provide um, medical insurance for those individuals. A SNAP program, also known as food stamps for people who live a certain level at or below the poverty line based on their, their household uh, demographics. You know, income, number of children, is there a single parent or two parents in the household? And the argument is that this welfare system there, it created this, this level, this point to where if you were at a certain amount of income, if you went higher than this certain level, the, the, let's say the poverty line, then you'd be working 40 hours a week and getting paid a dollar more, right? A thousand dollars more, maybe $500 more than this line. And you would be cut off from these benefits. And let's say that job that you had that paid you that much didn't provide you with health insurance or other types of, of benefits. However, in, in contrast, you could not work and just have the government give you the money and you would maybe have $500 or $1,000 less than if you worked 40 hours a week, maybe 60 hours a week. So what did that create? that created this reward system for doing nothing instead of creating an incentive to do more. 
gone were the praises of, hey, you are doing a great job. Keep working. Keep striving. You will move up. You will gain skills. You will improve. You will climb up the ladder of success, financial success, through your job, through your income. But instead, what it created is people weighed their options and said, hmm, I can work either 40 hours in a week, maybe more, and end up with only $500 or $1,000 more than if I didn't do anything. Well, my cost-benefit analysis tells me that I could save myself 40 hours a week, 2,000 hours a year to do nothing. Now, jump forward, and that is not entirely true because not everyone who is below this poverty line level is being given welfare money. There are millions of Americans who, even though they may qualify, they are not given this welfare money because there are certain other parameters that they need to meet, certain other requirements that they need to meet. So then you have an even lower level of these individuals who not only do not have the income level, but they also don't have any other health benefits. And it just builds on top of this underclass. Their health is more than likely going to decrease. It's going to get worse because they can't afford the healthy food that they need to live a long life. And then when they become unhealthy, they're going to rack up more medical bills. And you can see this cycle, right? You can tell it just keeps going and going and going. But people can't help themselves. They can't get out of it. At least a large cohort of people in black America cannot get out of it. You hear the term perpetual poverty. Generational poverty. They either can't find a way or don't want to find a way to bring themselves out of poverty and to change the trajectory of their family for generations to come. Now that is not entirely true because we have heard numerous success stories and we know of numerous success success stories of black Americans who started in poverty and are now millionaires. And you don't even have to be a millionaire. You could be, your wealth could be enough to just get you through a full retirement, get enough for your kids to go to college. So what is keeping this black underclass? You have, like I mentioned, lack of income, the poverty line. You have crime rates. The other camp, which is the white supremacy, systemic racism, they say that that there's over-policing. However, when you poll black America and those living in these over-policed neighborhoods, They say they do want more police. They do want to feel safer in their neighborhoods because if there aren't police, then they are more than likely to become a victim of a crime. Whether it's theft, larceny, battery, assault, murder. So we're being told one thing when really those who are affected are wanting another. So then what causes this, what causes the underclass to be stuck in crime? Is it because they don't have enough money? Is it because they're not educated? Is it because they don't have enough money because they're not educated? 
are they not educated and then therefore don't have a good job to have enough money because maybe their family life, their family structure didn't include a mother and a father and it was only just a mother or just a father? Or is it because they had no parents? And that's where camp two comes in, right? You can pick up on that camp two, which is the, we don't need the government's help. We can do this on our own, but there are things that the black America needs to fix internally. They say, yep, crime too much, lack of education too much, family structure, not good. Statistics show that if you have a mother and a father in the house and they are married, that the children are more likely to succeed through school, more likely to graduate high school, more likely to go to college and graduate from college or graduate with some college, like an associate's degree. Which brings me to these statistics. I want to go through these with you. Bear with me. I'm going to try to chop them up a little bit so it's not too overwhelming or just not too boring, let's be honest. So bear with me here. We're going to, we're going to dive in. All right, regarding income and economic data. The median annual wage for black workers is approximately 30% or $10,000 lower than it is for white workers. And a lot of these statistics are going to be black versus white. That's what's popular. We know that there are more races within this country. The top four are black, white, Hispanic, and Asian. And for most of these statistics, black includes black only. So like both parents were black. It also includes black and another race. Or if you identify as black and you are two or more races. Uh, black America is 12.9% of the labor force, but only accounts for 9.6% of the wages in America. A disparity. Black workers are disproportionately represented in low-wage occupations and underrepresented in high-wage occupations. So like just coming out of the pandemic, we heard about you know the frontline workers, people who are working at the checkout lines in grocery stores or stock boys or um, waiters and waitresses or you know doing all these other lower paying jobs. And there are too many blacks doing these jobs when there are too few that are lawyers, software engineers or engineers in general, doctors, you know, you get the picture. There's too many of the low and not enough of the high. The median wage for all us workers in the U S is around $42,000, but 43% of black workers earn less than 30,000 per year. Like I mentioned, only 5% of the physicians, the doctors in America are black and software developers, only 4.5%, even though they make up almost 13% of the labor workforce. You also have that 96% of all black owned businesses are sole proprietorships. And that is only 80% of um, own businesses are sole proprietorships. So the argument there is that, yes, there are a lot of black owned companies, but they don't have the scale of, let's say, white, Asian or Hispanic owned companies. 
Also, white entrepreneurs start their business with $107,000 of capital on average. But the corresponding figure for black founders of companies is only $35,000 of starting capital. So about one third of that of white entrepreneurs. And then we can get into, as I kind of brought up there, you know, that perpetual underclass, what's really going on there? Is it because of systemic racism? Is it because of white supremacy? Or is it because there are things that they need to correct in the cultural structure to improve? Obviously, it'll take time, but to improve and get to the level of equality that Black America wants to strive for and really what we should want everyone to strive for. Not to go off on a tangent, but I was thinking about this leading up to the creation of this episode, but I'm like, wouldn't it be great since we're not supposed to see each other by the color of our skin, but instead see each other by the content of our character? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't need to track all of this stuff for data analysis? Wouldn't it be great if we could, whenever we fill out a form, it not have race or ethnicity? Wouldn't that be fantastic? You know, uh, something be just be blind. It's almost March Madness for basketball, right? And you can tell, or as an example for March Madness, one of the things they'll do on like an, a show on ESPN or something like that, a bracketology show, they'll take three teams. They won't tell you who, who the schools are, but they'll put their resumes up there on the screen next to side-by-side -side comparison to take away the the bias or the prejudice that may exist if it's a big name school, but let's say the big name school has the same resume as a small school. Wouldn't it be great if we can just get to that? We stop worrying about this data collection and we can just put your name on the form. You don't have to put if you're white or black or Hispanic or Asian or any other race or ethnicity. Wouldn't that be fantastic? All right, back to the data. So housing data, one in five black households are situated in a food desert. What's a food desert? A food desert, according to the USDA, means that there is not adequate grocery stores and like fresh foods available. What you get are stuck with is convenience stores with all the prepackaged food and with the preservatives and everything else in it that, that is not good for you and definitely not good for you compared to fresh food or food of more variety that you could find in a grocery store. 54% of black renter households are cost burdened, meaning that more than 30% of their income goes toward housing expenses. 19% of black families, roughly 3.5 million, have a negative net worth due to debt, 19%. And for white families, that's 8%. And then the median black household has 8%. And then the median black household has only one eighth of the wealth held by the median white household. And going back to math, right? Median is if you lined everything up, all the statistics, all the data, right there in the middle, just like a median in the road. So the median black household has one eighth of the wealth held by the median white household. All right, now I think we're getting a little bit closer to the root cause here with this next set of, of data. 
And I apologize for going back and forth between data and data. I can't decide which one I want to say. Data like date, but data like dad. Hmm? Anyway. So now we're going to get into a little more of the root causes. Root causes have been very popular recently because you want to find what is really going on. Like I mentioned, and I've said multiple times already, is it truly systems in America that are racist and keeping black America down under their thumb? Or is there some of that going on or definitely some of that has, or a lot of that has gone on in the past, but today or over the last X decades, maybe two, three decades. Have we moved out from that, away from that? And now it is more of a cultural issue. So let's look at some more information. Educational data. In 1940, that's when the Census Bureau started asking about education. Only 7% of black only 7% of blacks had a high school education compared with 24% overall in the country. 1940, 7% of blacks had a high school education. Remember, there's still segregation going on down here in the South. But today, 88% of blacks have a high school diploma, and the national average is 91%. So look at that gap closure. There's a 3% difference, 3% below that national average. And what we are seeing is this phenomenon as the older Black America is aging out, the younger Black America, which has more education, is coming up and replacing it. So that is increasing that percentage of Black Americans who have a high school diploma and over time should also be increasing the numbers, the percentage of Black Americans who have college degrees. In 1940, less than 5% of all adults and only 1% of Blacks had completed four years of college. However, in 2019, national average completing college is 36%, while 20%, 26% of Blacks between ages 25 and older had a bachelor's degree. So 10% from the national average. Black college enrollment rates, 38%. National average is 41%. The national average of high school dropout rate declined from 19% in 1968 to 6% in 2008. And the black dropout rate fell from 33% to 5%, which is right in line with the national average. So that's great. But then when it comes to this national report card, NEAP, also known as national report card, you know, measures proficiency in subjects or different subjects within school. This is for eighth grade, going back to 2018. This is where it gets a little, uh, a lot of question marks start going up. In 2018, the NEAP, the national report card, reported the following results for eighth graders. Only nine out of 100 black students performed at or above the proficiency level for eighth graders in civics. So that's 9%. Only 13 out of 100 black students performed at or above the proficiency level for eighth grade 
in math, 13%. And only 15 out of 100 black students performed at or above the NAEP proficiency level for reading, 15%. 9% in civics, 13% in math, 15% in reading. Compared to whites, and Hispanics and Asians, I believe, did better as well. But compared to whites, of those three scores, only one was below 31%. All of them were better than the results for the black students, again, at, at the eighth grade level in 2018. So what happened? What's going on? High school dropout rates decreased to the national average, but the proficiency levels of eighth graders going back three to four years ago is well below where it should be if you go based on, based on the high school graduation rates, based on the dropout rate, 9%, 13%, 15%. Standards are being adjusted. I've seen reports about that. Standards. And this brings in camp number two, the Jason Riley and Glenn Lowry, arguing that it is actually racist to adjust the standards to meet the lower level of proficiency. And this isn't just for black America. In this instance, we're talking about it, but this goes across for any race. But to lower the standards in order to achieve like a higher graduation rate or a higher proficiency rate, whether that's for funding or whatever, is racist. You are saying that this group of people can't perform at the level they're supposed to, so we're going to change the level required. And what you also see whenever it comes to, and I don't have the, the data for this right here in front of me, but I remember reading the number of black students who are going to college is increasing, which is fantastic. But they also have a high rate of not finishing college. Some say that's because things tied to affirmative action or the like kind of leg up, giving someone a leg up and they are, these programs are putting black students who don't have the correct proficiency level, or maybe they do have a high score. Let's say on the SATs, like when I was in school, it was 800 verbal, 800 math. Those were the top scores. Now there's writing or something else thrown in there. But let's say you had a 650 in math, but yet you're going to a school for diversity purposes, where every other student there averaged a 750 or maybe a 700, you are not going to perform well as those other students that will psychologically tell you that you cannot perform as well as these students. You'll have self-doubt, your performance will decrease, and then you might ultimately drop out. So instead of trying to meet these diversity quotas, take these students and put them to where in schools where they should be. 
Otherwise, you're just setting them up to fail. Household structure. One more cultural one. The National, Camp, the National Council on Family Relations claims that the nuclear family, which is a father, mo- father, father, mother, and the children, or at least child, are an extension of white supremacy. This is the National Council on Family Relations, which heads up or is in charge of like the National Marriage Magazine, National Family Magazine. So think of the content that's going to get woven into these magazines, these journals that uh, that doctors and like pediatricians and <clears throat> psychologists and psychiatrists for children, adolescents and and pediatric psychology and everything, they they reference these as like a source of of truth and and things to bring up in these therapy sessions or in doctor appointments, what have you. And you have this organization, the National Council on Family Relations, saying that the nuclear family is merely an extension of white supremacy. <clears throat> that sounds a lot like Black Lives Matter. Now, don't go to Black Lives Matter website because they've removed their that they're a Marxist organization. But going back one to two years ago, that was their their mission. Their mission was to say they were a Marxist organization. They wanted to end capitalism. They want to destroy capitalism, destruct it. And they said that the nuclear family was part of capitalism. So, you know, by association, they wanted to erase the nuclear family. Now, I have some information regarding the, the nuclear family. The nuclear family, 70% of 70 to 75% of white children grow up in a nuclear family. So married parents living in the same household for blacks. That number is about 38% single households. I believe it for black America is about 41% for Asia. The, the nuclear family is around 80% for Asians. And I believe it's around 60% for Hispanics. So there is good argument to be made that there is positive correlation between the family structure by these, by these race groups and success of the children moving forward. And I touched on this a little bit in a previous episode that I did actually called the nuclear family. So go back and look that up. I don't remember the number but it is just called the nuclear family. And then that brings me to one more cultural aspect for black America. And that is abortion. Abortion in black America is obviously literally killing black America, but it is also killing the success of black America. Now there's two arguments. There's two sides, right? Those who support abortion and say black, black Americans need access. Women need access to abortion, which black lives matter supports the killing of babies. And any one of those babies could be the next great black American to lift up the entire race. 
We've already had a black president, have a black vice president. Any one of those millions of children that have been killed through abortions could have been the next one and the next one and the next one. The next great philosopher, the next great journalist, the next great doctor, medical mind, like a Ben Carson. The next great insert job title here. Philanthropist, whatever, judge. But millions are being killed. Abortions have actually dropped over the last 15 years among racial groups. But black women continue to have the highest rate of abortion at 27 per 1,000 women compared to 10 for 1,000 for white. So that's 2.7 times more black women having abortions than white women. And black women have been experiencing abortions at a rate nearly four times that of white women for more than 30 years. 30 years, that is a generational time frame. Black America, which is about 12 to 13% of the population, is out, I don't want to say performing, that is the wrong term. They're completing two and a half, at minimum, two and a half times as many abortions as white women. And I believe Asian women are around six per 1,000 or four four per 1,000 and Hispanics are six per 1,000. Black American women are killing off an entire generation through abortion. And the argument is, oh, well, they're doing this because they're, they don't have the family structure. They don't have the man. The men are in jail. There are no good men out there to support and raise these children. You know, they're going to be in poverty and everything else. Well, the other argument is if you can fix your life and you can get and you can make improvements and get yourself out of poverty, then these children deserve, well, not only do they deserve the life because they are alive, they are a human being, but that they can further black America. They could be an entrepreneur. They could create jobs. They could go to school. They can become a doctor. They can become a lawyer. They can fill in these underrepresented uh, career gaps that I talked about earlier. But you wipe them off the face of this earth, they never get that chance to improve the family's life and black America as a whole. So they have to, you have to choose, right? Are you going to take a chance and pursue the dream, pursue what you are asking for and demanding? Because Camp One says they want to tear everything down and rebuild it so everything is equal. Do blacks, you need to sacrifice time and money if it requires it to support black businesses, to support local black businesses. Don't go to Amazon to get something. Go to the local black business. Even if it requires you to drive an extra two, three, four, five miles, even if it takes you an extra $5 because they can't scale, so the cost is higher. If you were to bring up these levels to 
equal in black America to white America when it comes to businesses. They're talking about there could be over 600 billion to 1 trillion more dollars infused into the black economy. So what are you doing when it comes to abortion? Each baby is a chance to improve your society. But first you have to improve yourself. So the question is, what is happening in black America? I just gave you a whole bunch of statistics. I gave you a whole bunch of culture, historical perspective. But where are the leaders, leaders in black America? Yes, there are those that are looking to make change and are making change for the good, for the betterment of black America. And then there are those that just spout racism because they live and earn their living talking about it. So you can't get rid of it or they don't want to truly get rid of it because then their livelihood is affected. So black America needs to be elevated. And we all need to do our part to do that. Thank you for listening to Counterthought, a podcast conserving America's freedom, culture, and values. Remember to subscribe and like or rate the podcast on your podcast app or on YouTube. And engage with the podcast on Instagram at counter underscore thought at counterthought CEO or on Facebook at counterthought podcast.